welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome back to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, you can always reach us through Facebook, through our Instagram, Note Doctors Podcast, and our email address, notedoctorspodcast at gmail.com if you have questions, comments about the podcast. Uh, But today, our very special guest is Nicole Biamonte. This is usually when I pass it off to Jen or Ben and they read the bio, but somehow I lost the audio for Jen reading Nicole's bio, so I'm going to read it now for you. So here we go. Nicole Biamonte is Associate Professor of Music Theory at McGill University. She holds a PhD in theory from Yale University and has also studied piano and conducting. Her primary research areas are 19th century musical historicism, music theory pedagogy, and the theory and analysis of popular music, focusing on pitch structures, meter and rhythm, form, and most recently, timbre. It's a great conversation about popular music and the ways that we can think about timbre in the classroom, so stay tuned. And this is leading to me to conclude sort of even more firmly that when we keep talking about the harmony and the melody, and even the rhythm to some extent as primary parameters, um, and these other parameters, texture, timbre, dynamics, and articulation as secondary parameters, um, that's we're being kind of part of the problem in, in reifying this, this canon of Western art music, because I don't think those parameters are secondary in popular music, and I think that they're not secondary in a lot of non-Western musics as well. So I think this is just another reason why I think this, this incredible pitch centricity is hurting us. So our very special guest is Nicole Biamonte, and we're, um, we might need to change our opening uh, opening a little bit because I think in our opening we say the most innovative theory instructors in the country but Nicole you are actually our second theory teacher from not the United States but from Canada so we might need to expand it out a little bit to I don't know the continent or North America so we're talking to all these folks I don't know um, it's kind of exciting but we're really pleased to have you on to talk about all things timbre and pop music and all those things. Uh, before, though, uh, we like to always ask our guests a little bit about how they got into theory. How did you end up in Canada teaching music theory? <laughs> well, it, it was a pretty circuitous path, actually. Um, I, I started out as uh, a pianist, which I think is probably true for a lot of music theorists. Although having just said that, I know I have a lot of colleagues who do, uh, who did come to music theory through playing uh, either keyboard instrument or there are a lot of theorists who were guitarists, played kind of harmony instruments. But I just wanted to say that I'm really surprised in talking to more of my colleagues and finding out about their performance backgrounds at, at how many theorists play single line instruments, which I didn't expect. Like, uh, yeah, okay, see? So, <laughs> so my stereotype is a little bit off base there. Yeah, yeah. so I know, yeah. you know, flutists and violinists. There seem to be a surprising number of trombonists music theorists also. Mm. Ben um, is a trumpet player and I'm a horn player. Uh, that was Okay. 
Great. Yeah, my colleague Bob, Bob Hasagawa started as a horn player, and my mm -hmm. colleague John Wilde started as a trombone player. Um, but so I started as a pianist. I was doing a piano degree at my local university, State University of New York at Purchase, and I, I liked performing a lot, but uh, I didn't like so much being graded on those performances and uh, having them be compared. That was kind of killing the joy of it for me, I think. Um, and it was also an issue that I didn't really have good practice technique um, or good study technique. I think also like a lot of people, I kind of waltzed through high school without really working very hard or having good work habits. Uh, and that didn't really serve me well in, in college either. So um, I had some problems with tendonitis as well. So it just got to feel kind of fraught. Um, but I liked theory very much. I liked the emphasis on finding and understanding the patterns in music, which I find fascinating. Um, I liked learning these different kinds of harmonic shorthand. Um, and I think it also helped that I had a really good and dedicated theory professor, Robert Fertitta, shout out. Um, so I, I went from undergrad straight to PhD. This was before the days of the internet, so I didn't really have a good sense of like what programs were out there. I just sort of applied to the ones that were generally in the Northeast because I grew up in downstate New York. Um, and so I went straight into the PhD program at Yale, which I really, I don't recommend. Um, I, I thought, yes, I'm just going right for it and be very focused. But um, I kind of felt behind a lot of my peers that had done a master's degree and a written theses and more larger papers and had done more of the reading. And, um, and I ended up with a smaller network of people who could give me professional advice and support me. So uh, I wouldn't, they, that is not the choice that I would make if I could do it again, even though it worked out okay. Um, yeah. Do you want yeah, me to continue one. on to how, well, I, how you, I got you, to Canada? I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, you've gotten as far as, far as what, Connecticut. So uh, yes, you gotta okay, go a little right. farther north, right? So you're in New Haven, yes. <laughs> so, uh, so I, um, I finished my PhD uh, in probably the time, it, the, maybe more than the time it would have taken me to do two separate degrees, a master's and a PhD. Uh, and then they kept me on for two years um, as an instructor teaching the big pop history and jazz history courses, because that was already an area of interest of mine. I should maybe even talk a little bit about my dissertation work. I originally wanted to write a dissertation. See, Canada was a thing for the beginning because the dissertation <laughs> that I that I wanted to write was on the Canadian progressive uh, rock trio Rush because yeah. uh, I loved their music and it's what's called sometimes muso music because they use a lot of weird modes and a lot of weird time signatures. Um, and it's texturally really interesting just because there's a trio and the norm for a lot of rock bands is to have four people. So I was very interested in talking about these different musical parameters and uh, none of the faculty there were very interested in hearing about it. I was really strongly discouraged from writing about popular music uh, and was told people will never take you seriously and, and you will never get a job. Uh, which is ironic because that is actually a big part of the reason that I was hired at McGill was because they wanted a popular music specialist uh, in part just to have that area represented because it's a growing area of the discipline subfield, I guess, but uh, also because we have these big programs, grad programs in music technology and in sound recording, and most of those students are working on popular repertoires. So it's better. They wanted more support from the theory side mm -hmm. of things. Um, so I ended up writing on modes anyway, but I ended up writing on modes in 19th century music in Beethoven, Brahms, and Schumann. Originally, Schubert was on that list as well, but all of the things of Schubert's that I thought were modal kind of 
kind of melted under my hands. There's there's no modal <laughs> Schubert. There's lots of flat two and there's lots of major minor mixture, but there's not things that are like the old modes, Dorian, Phrygian, Mixolydian. But there's mm -hmm. plenty of that in Beethoven and Brahms and Schumann. And what I was hoping to come up with was kind of my a grand theory of modal harmony in the 19th century. Like how does this construct that was originally melodic work when you kind of plunk it into the context of a couple of hundred years of functional harmony. But I didn't come up with a grand theory of everything because really each piece kind of constructed its own language in that way. So I did come up with a system of sort of basic categories like modal inflections, modal melody, modal harmony, modality, came up with kind of degrees of modality, I guess. Uh, and then I related that to the historical impulses that, that came from, that some of them are imitating just historicist music or religious music or kind of faux folk music was such a big trope then, uh, or exoticism. Um, so I, I had enough pages, even if it wasn't a grand theory of everything. So I guess that was good enough. Um, but I, they knew I was interested in, in popular music and I um, paid, paid for some of grad school with doing like piano bar gigs at local places. So I knew some basic jazz. So I enjoyed teaching those classes in pop music history and jazz history a lot. Um, and I was also directing the Collegium Musicum because I'd studied a little bit of choral conducting and uh, was a church choir director as well. So that was great fun for me, but it was never meant to be a permanent job. And I think they only ever meant to give me a year, but they gave me another year. Um, and then I um, was hired at Skidmore College, which is a bit north of there uh, in Saratoga, New York. Mm -hmm. And um, I, uh, that was also a visiting job that was supposed to be a one year, and then they gave me another year, which was great. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the kind of job that I really thought I was aimed for, because even though my dissertation was theory, it was kind of half theory and half musicology, because I talked a lot about the educational backgrounds of the composers and a lot of issues of style and genre and these impulses that were behind the modality. And I ended up working with a musicologist. I actually, my advisor was Leon Planiga, which is largely because everyone said, don't work with someone who's not senior because Yale doesn't keep their juniors. They just let them go. And then you'll be trying to do things remotely via the mail and it will slow mm -hmm. you down. And I guess that was true at the time, but I'm still kind of sorry. So the senior profs were Alan Fort, who didn't really believe in modality at all. He was like, well, these are surface inflections. Um, and, Rob <laughs> and Robert Morgan, who I really didn't get along with at all. And I know that's true for a lot of people. Um, yeah, so and I'm, I'm kind of sorry because the junior people when I was there were Janet Schmalfeld and Ramon Satyendra. And honestly, if I had worked with one of them, I think it would have been a much better experience. Um, but, uh, but the times they are changed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so all this to say, I went to Skidmore uh, and I thought this is the place, this is a place for me because I'm a generalist. I'm kind of theory chops, musicology chops. I've studied choral conducting. I could teach basic piano, uh, which I have done. And I have to say, I, having done it, it's not really a, a career goal for me anymore, but, uh, but I'm willing. Um, uh, but uh, that wasn't a permanent job either. There was a permanent job that opened up two years later, and it came down to me and one of my friends from graduate school, Ben Given, who works on jazz, uh, on Django Reinhardt. Um, and, I th and they said that what put it over the line really was that he had an article out and I didn't. So that was a real kick in the pants for the research agenda. So it broke my heart not to get that job, but I think that is essentially what put me on this, this research trajectory. Mm -hmm. So then I applied widely and uh, the next decision came down to taking a position, visit another visiting gig at the University of Iowa or 
the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum in Cleveland, which was looking for an education director. Um, and I had a lot of fun interviewing there. Um, and I would have gotten to wear really cool outfits to work because a lot of the people who work there really dress like rock stars. And, you know, because a lot of it is about the artifacts. I, I like mm -hmm. the Rock Hall, but I think the Experience Music Project in Seattle does a much better job of engaging with the actual music. And so I kind of felt like already a little bit ideologically at odds because for I feel like they've created this kind of very much museum culture of, of popular music there. Mm -hmm. uh, but they made me the offer and um, it was going to be a lot of teaching, um, teaching kind of one hour classes to kids on field trips about mm -hmm. these kind of general topics. Uh, and then they had a conference series uh, that they were running and they had a conference every year and they wanted to have a proceedings. And so they'd had 10 years of conferences and they were still working on the first book of proceedings. So there was also this kind of huge backlog mm -hmm. of, of like book production. Um, so the Iowa job was really kind of more appealing. I thought, if I take this job at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it'll probably be really fun for a couple of years and probably I will not get rid of this backlog. I, I felt even at the time, like this is just gonna pile up worse. Um, and maybe they needed two people in charge of that. Um, and it just didn't seem like there was enough potential for my own growth. I thought, you know, after enough years of teaching these classes to seventh graders, I don't know, gonna turn me into an alcoholic maybe or something. So I don't know, it didn't, I, I chose the scholarly route. I thought uh, this is what I really want. So I went to the University of Iowa instead which was uh, a big paradigm shift culturally, um, I think. I think it was a good, um, it was a good apprenticeship for the job I have now because there was a very small department. There were three theorists and we all rotated teaching everything. Um, and there were a bunch of kind of, there was an undergrad core and then some theory seminars for the small bunch of research PhDs. But there were a whole bunch of classes that were kind of mm, designed for the grad performers because their school also has a huge big school of music that's organized like a conservatory. Um, and I kind of miss teaching those classes. I kind of miss teaching those in-between seminars that are kind of a mix of breadth and depth. I kind of don't do that anymore. I'm very much a specialist. And there's advantages to that, right, as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I'm privileged really to work with these students and to have the colleagues that I do. Um, but but I still miss the kind of generalist aspects of these other jobs that I had. So, so that was also a visiting gig. Um, and they had a tenure track job that opened up the next year. Uh, and uh, when that came around, there were two of us who were visiting there, me and Bob Cook, who has since actually left the field, uh, possibly because of the way that uh, people, the, the way it wasn't, we weren't really treated so well. And so one of the ways in which we weren't treated well was the search committee said, oh, well, it's so awkward to have your internal candidates because then they're like interviewing for the whole year. So we're not gonna consider any internal candidates. And that was oh. really, bad professional behavior because, you know, the, the, that position was held out as bait during the interview. I don't know that that's the move that I would have made halfway across the country for just the one year. So, so then I went to San Antonio where I made some great friends and I had an excellent time and uh, played some fun gigs on the Riverwalk. And that was <laughs> such a different kind of teaching because at Iowa, they wanted to be research one and everyone was like, oh, how can we, you know, make things more prestigious? Um, and at San Antonio, I think they were just accepting that the Austin was the flagship branch and everybody was just a lot more relaxed. 
Um, it was also a very different kind of teaching. The student population is very different. There were a lot of students from these like little border towns um, and a lot more remediation. But I just feel like both culturally, I guess, and institutionally, everything was just more chill. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I miss that a little bit. Uh, but the search at Iowa failed, and they ran it again the next year, and I had already fallen in love with a man who is my husband now, who is in the musicology area there. So I went back to Iowa um, and taught there until I was about to go up for tenure, and then the McGill job came up, and I said, oh, wow, the McGill, I, and they're looking for someone who does pop music, and uh, I, I'll, you know, I probably won't get this, but I'll throw my hat in the ring anyway. Um, and, uh, so they interviewed me and I think I still had that voice in my head saying like, you're, you know, you're, you're checking off some gender box for, for the people they're interviewing. I, I didn't really think that I would get the job. And I think because of that, that was like one of the best interviews that I gave because it, I wasn't constantly second guessing myself and thinking like, do I seem like I'm being the person they want me to be? You know, I was just myself. And I've since figured out that that's what you really have to do anyway. You shouldn't do this, like try and pretend to be who you think they want because ultimately that's not who you are. You're not gonna be happy and they're not gonna be happy. So yeah, I was just normal and I was, you know, said some smart aleck things to Peter Schubert and that also turned out to be like the right direction to go. <laughs> um, and I in fact accused them of faking like what I took to be an unrealistic degree of collegiality during my interview. I congratulated them on that because honestly, every other department that I've been part of, there's always been at least one person who is like a little bit problematic in their interactions with others. And so uh, I'm so grateful that I'm in a department now where we don't have that. No, nobody is a jerk. I mean, unless it's me and I'm not aware, but I don't think so. I hope not. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it's a really collegial department and I'm happy to be there. And uh, it was again, a bit of a paradigm shift. I had the idea that moving to Canada was not gonna be that different from the States, but really I moved to Quebec which is uh, sort of its own little nation within Canada uh, and very much considers itself to be sovereign. In fact, they didn't, uh, there's a part of the, the federal constitution that they haven't signed on to. Um, and so there's also the language issue, but really a lot of the governmental framing, for example, their parliament should be called the provincial assembly like everybody else's. All the other provinces' parliament okay. is the provincial we parliament, but Quebec's parliament is the national. You were on such a roll. Is the Assemblée Nationale. So um, <laughs> there's there's a bit of I don't know, kind of kind of I guess jingoism there, um, and and it so is Jen, definitely more different. It's in? more like I guess Europe light. Um, so so that was a change. But now that we're used to it here, I really like it a lot. There's a good system of public transit. There is a big initiative to um, improve the bike paths about okay, five or so 10 Paul's years staying. before okay. we moved here. Um, so right, it's also really second. bike friendly. Um, obviously it's culturally really interesting. There's a lot going on. The food is Just good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so uh, I'm pretty happy here. It's yeah. a beautiful city. Well, thank you city. for just sharing. Yeah, that because I think it gives a taste of what it's kind of like out there. Uh, you know, folks who are in, in graduate school, they, they don't always know what it takes to, to get a job and the, the hoops sometimes, or just the, the, the left turns or the disappointments, the, the, the doors closing and the other windows opening, you know, those kind of platitudes. But it can be a winding road to get to eventually where you feel like you want to be. And if that's at a tenure track place, great. If it's at a lecture job, if it's something non-academic, that's great too. But you know, 
you, you can make it as long as you're kind of have your eyes open and you're kind of looking uh, towards what possibilities you have, I suppose. Yeah. And I have to say, I'm presenting this as kind of this, oh, success story of, oh, I left these other jobs, but I ended up here and I'm happy. The thing that has been the casualty of that has been my husband's career because he left his job at University of Iowa to become a trailing spouse here and has been an adjunct here ever since. Um, so I'm, I'm a bit subsidizing the exploitation of, of his labor, um, which is, uh, I guess, my, my only real discontent with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, we are making it work. <laughs> we, we, live in, mm-hmm. we live in the same place, and that's better than a lot of academic couples mm-hmm. are doing. That's true. Yeah, so. that's true. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, there's so much of your story that's so relatable to, I think, a lot of people out there. But in particular... You have all of this experience, all this performing, all of this involvement with popular music. And then, you know, you kind of, in your uh, advising, your professors kind of steer you, oh, what, shouldn't you talk about Beethoven? You know what I mean? I feel like that happens so much more than anybody would, would probably like to admit that people have interests in repertories that are well outside what maybe their advisors you know, kind of want to steer them towards. And then they wind up, you know, writing theses or dissertations that may or may not actually be like the music that they're passionate about, you know, um, just because they want to uh, proceed forward with their degree. They want to finish their degrees, you know, just like anybody does. So, gosh, kudos to you for kind of sticking to it ultimately, you know, and still working in popular music and and pursuing that um, with all your, your passion and energy. And that's that's really admirable. Thank you so much. I mean, I'm not sure I I have I have used this story about, oh, they said no one will ever hire you. And now, look, I got my favorite job where I'm hoping to retire from uh, because of pop music. But but then again, at the time, I mean, this was the 90s and it was still a pretty new area. And I mean, I know other people that finished not long after me and did work on popular music that had really an even harder time uh, or even are still having a hard time. So. I'm kind of torn about this. I hate that it's that way, and that at the same time, I'm I'm, I'm not entirely positive that it was bad advice. That that I I mean, I'm not sure. I don't think I would have gotten hired at Iowa if I had actually done the dissertation on Rush. But I might have gotten hired at McGill. I don't know. <laughs> so, but but I do think it stands. Just the just the general idea that you should take um, advice about your dissertation topic from senior people, but you should take advice on your job search. Uh, from more junior people that have been through mm-hmm. that more recently. Yeah. Because even though senior, senior people, that. they serve on committees and they see the applicants, but it's it's not the same perspective at all. Yeah. Very true. Very true. Totally. I've talked about this before on the podcast, but I had a sort of similar experience because I was wanting to do a pedagogy dissertation and was given similar counsel. Like, no, you won't get hired or only women do that. So you want to steer clear, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I think we're maybe leaving the time where that's the case now. But um, yeah, I had similar advice. And I wrote a history of theory dissertation for that reason. So honestly, now I'm at a teaching university. And it's kind of similar. They might have loved if I had written a pedagogy dissertation, (laughs) because my whole advancement and rank it's all about me as a teacher and me as an advisor, mentor, that kind of thing. And my, you know, research or that kind of thing is just a really small part of it. 
I'm, so. I'm so glad to see that this is finally just way overdue, that people are starting to realize, like, you know, yes, research is great, but I think, you know, elite programs like that came, one that I came from have, have really kind of propagated this kind of, I don't know, disciplinary bigotry. Like, oh, well, you know, if you're not a good researcher, then you could always teach, but it's like the second best option. It's like, wait, but that's actually our, our raison d'etre. This is the reason we're here. Right. This is the, what we more owe our students than anything else. So, yeah, yeah. So I'm glad to see finally people are recognizing that that this is important and that I guess as a as a part Mm -hmm. of the discipline that it's getting more respect. I feel that way about pedagogy and popular music both. I feel like there's Mm -hmm. still a ways to go before they're kind of at this as central as I really feel like they should be. But 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 it's definitely getting better. Yeah. Speaking of pedagogy and popular music. I have presented I don't know how many pop tunes in my core theory classes over the last, you know, however many years. One question I had to ask you, and we talked about a little bit before, was how what is the best way to really present the pop tune in class? Because I've done what feels like every single option. I've got the lyrics listed with kind of the chord symbols. I've got, you know, just a blank staff. We kind of might do some transcribing. Well, what is the melody? What is the bass? You know, harmony all this kind of thing, um, you know, there are so many ways to present a pop tune. You can find a transcription online, but it may be wrong, or it may be in a different key than the one that's on YouTube or whatever one you're playing in class, so that kind of throws a wrench into things. You know, I just have to ask, what in your experience, you know, can you give us some kernels of wisdom as to how to best do this um, in like a core theory class? Uh, I mean, I don't know if there's a definitive answer to that yet. So, so I tell my two students that if you're not sure of the answer of a question, there are always two backup answers you can default to. And one is it's more complicated than that. And the other, <laughs> the other is it depends, yes. it depends on the context. And those are just usually true across yes. the board. So, so my students now like troll me all the time with these answers, but, but that's okay because again, those are usually true. So that sort of leads to other things. So for me, I think it depends on like what my objective is and what I'm trying to show. But one of the things that I definitely do is try to um, expand the range of kinds of notation that they've seen beyond traditional staff notation. So actually, no, I would say right. my, my default answer is that I do tend to like, um, the published full band uh, scores that have bass and drum parts. And I would say more than anything, when yeah. that is available, that, that's what I most prefer to use. Um, even though sometimes like there's the big book of the Beatles complete scores, but there are a bunch of other, there's, um, uh, I can't remember what publisher puts this out, but it's a, a transcription series called Off the Record and they have some full band ones that are good. Uh, and then there's a series called the Japan full band series that has, um, the complete texture um but but you know there's that's just a tiny percentage of the music that's out there that that's available for um but i like to use that because i think that students tend to default either toward listening to the vocal line or whatever the melody is or Mm -hmm. listening to whatever instrument they play if they're a keyboardist and i mean i'm Mm -hmm. guilty of this myself i was always listening to yes the melody or the keyboard um uh, until my husband started playing bass and now i've started paying more attention to bass lines. And when I started working on rhythm and meter, I started paying more attention to the drums. And honest, this is going to sound very silly, but uh, 
for a while, maybe 15 years ago, we were playing a, a video game called Rock Band that came with these little toy instruments, and you play these <laughs> mm-hmm. kind of like sort mm-hmm. of dumbed down versions of the song along with it. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that actually really helped me hear a lot. So I spent a lot of time playing the bass and drums on those just to kind of mm-hmm. as a way into the song from yeah. a different perspective than the way that I was used to listening. So is that research time, I guess? Um, like I got to totally. do more research. You know, I did, I did actually get one book chapter out of it on called like a representation in Guitar Hero and Rock Band, where I talked about their kind of, uh, well, I liked the fact that the notation had a Z axis. I made much of that, but just, yeah, some other things yeah. about the notation. Yeah. And then at the end of the game, you get a little formal breakdown with how accurate you were in each section. And so I was talking mm-hmm. about those formal breakdowns as analyses. And advocating particularly, I, I really, there's one term that uh, I really would like to adopt, which was for their, um, um, for an outro that is just a big long guitar solo over a repeated chorus pattern. I think this showed up in like, um, oh, I don't know, Free Bird and Green Grass and High Tides and just these things that have infinite solos at the end. They, I can't remember which game called it this, but one of them called it End Wankery. And I just think that... <laughs> And that is just like the perfect descriptor of what <laughs> oh. happens in the song. So, um, yeah, yeah. So, so I advocated these. But to, but to get back to your your uh, original question, um, so I like to show those because it is like a score. I always try and start out yeah. by getting students just to listen and say, let's not look at anything. Let's just listen. Right. But once we get to a certain level of analytical particularity, most of the students start to get really kind of uncomfortable and antsy and feel like they need something to look at because we've trained them that if you're analyzing, then you need to be looking at some kind of transcription, which is in a way kind of too bad, right? Because they have errors and because they're not really neutral, right? It's, it's, you're Mm -hmm. making an, it's an analytical act when you make the transcription. So we talk about that at the beginning. And I used to have my pop class do a transcription project, but I've had to give it up these days because it takes, it's too much startup and too much time, and it's and it's actually kind of stressful for the students. Um, mm-hmm. So, but what I think those scores are useful for, like especially the Hal Leonard piano vocal kind of thing, it makes a great error detection exercise. It's like, all right, mm-hmm. so oh, yeah. <laughs> this is an approximation, but how can we fix this and how can we make this better? Um, but the other systems that I really like to show them are shorthand kinds of things like uh, both lead sheets and chord charts that don't have the staff that just have like the chord charts with the melody. Yes. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of those kinds of notation. I also like to show them, um, I mean, there's usually, I show them at some point, some piano vocal thing that has like regular tablature, but I also really like to show them internet tablature. Again, one, because there are a whole bunch of students that are already using it and playing it. Um, and two, because it actually is kind of a good introduction to um, uh, a post-tonal way of counting the semitones because the numbers are the same there, mm. right? A fifth is seven, which was very weird for me when I first encountered this in grad school. But if I had thought about it in terms of a guitar fretboard, um, it, it's just mm. a lot more intuitive and it makes a lot more sense. The thing that I haven't been using and that I think I would like to start using now, um, some of my colleagues in a Facebook group are just talking about this, is incorporating the Nashville number system, which is, you know, uh, kind of translating the Roman numerals into Arabic numerals, but um, it has a a better notation, I think, for the, I like the slash chord bass because we don't really have a good figured bass for bass is not a chord tone, Um, Mm -hmm. or we do, but it's real messy. 
and uh, and also just because there's some rhythmic markings there as well. So it gives, or at least I guess metric, I should say, it, it conveys a little bit of the metric aspect as well. Um, and even more because it's an actual practical system that's still being used. And so mm -hmm. I think maybe for students, it'll seem a little bit less kind of abstract and dusty than this Roman numeral figure based kind of system. Yeah, this so, is the first right. time yeah. that this ever happened to me, but I had students, I teach lead sheet symbols and Roman numerals kind of together. And I had two different students put Nashville numbers. I asked for them to write lead sheet symbols above on a homework assignment or something. And they put Nashville numbers instead of the lead sheets. Oh, and wow. I was like, that's interesting. Like in their mind, that's what, that's what a lead sheet symbol is. So then we had to circle back and be like, let's define a term. <laughs> but yeah, I think they are really useful. And a lot of students, especially if they're playing in like country bands um, down here, that's pretty common. Um, a lot of them are already using them quite a bit. Yeah, I yeah. mean, even just in the context of doing the piano bar stuff, sometimes I end up, you know, playing with with uh, a rhythm section and and well, I mean, these days someone will whip out an iPad that has the real book on it, which is extremely helpful. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, yeah, definitely in the old days, I've written tons of charts on a napkin using Roman numerals. Um, so this is just like a simplified version of that and, and e an easier, quicker version mm -hmm. to use the national number system. Yeah, I have to say, like, that was a great answer, by the way. I default to like putting on the front of the page less information, like maybe just a few key lyrics, like listen to what happens in this particular moment and use the lyric there or a lead sheet. And then on the back, I'll provide, like you say, something that they can more follow along with so that people aren't getting lost in the, <laughs> in the mix, you know, whether that's from the real book or, or an internet transcription or, or what have you. You know, I um, almost never yeah. do that except when I'm specifically talking about music and text is like the only time where I give them just the lyrics. But I'm glad you said that because I, I think that I should think about doing that. That's one of the things that I've actually noticed on like, especially the site Genius.com, their lyrics have these formal designations that are usually pretty good. I mean, they're not like up to yeah. the moment. They don't they don't know dance chorus and compliment chorus and like the very newest research. But, <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm usually largely in agreement with the, this kind of implicit formal analysis of the song. And so, uh, yeah. yeah, clearly that there's a, a, a lot of people approaching this music kind of from an, uh, a, a non-academic analysis who are, who are looking at it this way. So, so that would be another really good way in. One other point that I forgot to make is the value that I particularly like also in the full band transcriptions is that a lot of them have not ever seen drum kit notation. Mm -hmm. And so we always have to do yep. a special primer on that as well. I mean, there's a whole bunch, I have a handout, but it's really easy to find stuff online also about that. I have a handout because it's really easy to find stuff that's like overly complex online that has, you know, you know, here's the notation for like eight different ways you can play a symbol. And I don't, mm -hmm. we don't need to get at so detailed, but, but you know, yeah. it's something they, I want them to be able to recognize and use. You mentioned some kind of formal terms for that happen in pop music. And that's one of the kind of things that is interesting um, that you find in popular music, these different, it's not just verse and chorus anymore. There's these all these other terms, right? And so maybe for some folks who may not be uh, as adept with kind of analyzing popular music, what are some of the different kind of topics or formal ideas or even just you know ways songs are constructed now because you know they're beyond just the verse chorus anymore. It's really kind of fascinating some of the different directions they've gone in that um, 
that are helpful for students and that we can kind of think about and include in our own teaching? Yeah, I mean, I think I think one is the way that a lot of pop music is constructed has has changed. And part of that is because I think post-millennial pop music is more influenced um, in a lot of current pop. There's a lot of influence and people have recognized this from electronic dance music. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting mm-hmm. because uh, it's not really organized in these formal sections. Yeah, so like back in the day, I think we could even go back to before verse chorus, which is the 1970s thing. Uh, in earlier music, the most common thing is an AABA song form, right? Mm-hmm. And that's like Tin Pan Alley, mm-hmm. 40s, 50s pop. Yeah, and that's nice because it covers so much ground. You can relate it back to like a Bach dance suite and a da Capoaria and sonata form. And I mean, this general pattern has been around for uh, a very long time. Um, and uh, and there's still kind of vestiges of it there, but yeah, things have gotten a lot more complicated. And I think part of that is because of the influ- partly the influence of electronic dance music, which is much more processual. You don't really have these really clearly formally defined sections. I usually teach form early on in a pop analysis class because in a lot of genres, the formal sections are really well marked by changes in timbre and texture and. Mm-hmm other, you know, the harmonic pattern, the rhythm, the drummer plays a fill. I mean, there are a whole bunch of really clear markers for a formal section, and that's not true in EDM at all. It's much more, gra- you still do have these shifts, but they're much more kind of gradual and processual. Um, and I think that's that's responsible for one change. And another thread, I guess, that's changed is this real de-emphasis on the importance of harmony. Um, and so, so many songs these days are, are built on a four chord loop in which harmonic function is not really important anymore. And I suspect that probably comes from the influence of hip hop or maybe this kind of mm, more recent R&B that's also been really inflected by hip hop in that way. Um, although I have colleagues that kind of tie all of this back to the kind of static harmony that you get in funk, which came from R&B after all, mm-hmm. um, and maybe even from modal jazz, which was something that arose at the same time. Mm-hmm. So uh, for a long time, we've been talking about formal sections and defining them in terms of the harmonic progression. And I think in 70s and 80s rock, that was the norm. If you were writing a song, probably somebody wrote down a bunch of lyrics on a piece of paper and somebody wrote down a chord pattern and then they reconciled and then the rest was created in the studio. But I think it's not about that. That chord pattern is not a big part of the process anymore. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think there are some new kinds of sections and then some old kind of sections that work in different ways. And I think that some of these new names are actually some things that have been there and we just didn't really recognize them. So even mm-hmm. though we really talk about the dance chorus as being this, this mm, kind of heightened post-chorus designed for dancing in post-millennial music, um, I, I can think of examples of things like that from like Mariah, Mariah Carey's music from the 90s. So I think it's been a thing in dance music uh, earlier than it's been recognized so far. Yeah. Um, it's interesting you make a mention of it's like a workflow difference. Like the way people make music is changing the form. Mm. Like it's not just a guy writing a lyric and you know getting the chord progression and putting it together. No, it's, it's how you actually work on a computer to make something. The fact that you can copy and paste something 
or that you can move things over slightly. Like that change in workflow, I guess, changes the form, right? That's that's possible. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much. That's really an excellent point. Is part of it is that the kind of cut and pastiness of these modern digital audio workstation production tools make it really easy to do these kinds of uh, to do these kinds of loop-based things, and I think are probably also responsible for it's not just this decline of emphasis on on harmony, but uh, maybe a, a heightened emphasis on these sonic production parameters, which Asaf Perez has talked about a lot in his research. Um, and, uh, and I think that that is easier to manipulate at a more detailed level um, and, and kind of, yeah, so you can do more in a shorter time than you ever could before with these, with these kind of tools, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't have to like re-record the whole course. You can just like add a couple of layers or multi-track it or, you know, kind of tweak some of the other effects on it. And it's, and it's so much easier to do. So I think in rock music, especially, that was always like the production part was always this kind of space for expressive play in a way which it really wasn't in jazz recordings or art music recordings, which are trying to replicate a live performance more. But I think that that is even more true, right? So many, so many recordings today are really hard to reproduce live. And that was always true to some extent with the Beatles, A Day mm -hmm. in the Life and, you know, Queen, Bohemian Rhapsody and these things with large forces that, I mean, yes, today you could get them all in a concert hall and I've seen performances like that, but, but mostly not, right? I think a lot of that earlier music was designed to be performed live. Um, and maybe that's, maybe that's less true. Although that said, I feel like it is more of a requirement for artists to tour more these days because they can't make as much money through music <laughs> sales. So mm -hmm. there is still this kind of performance requirement, which is what I think has contributed yeah. to the decline of the fade out ending, because we get mm -hmm. so many songs, especially in the 70s and 80s, where it just kind of repeats and repeats into the distance uh, and you just turn down the volume. Right. And so it's 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 kind of neat because it's as if the music is continuing infinitely. It's just gotten out of range right. of your hearing. But um <laughs> It's really hard to pull that off convincingly in a live performance. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of songs today have what's called a cold ending uh, with a more defined mm -hmm. cadence is that works a lot better in a, in a live context. Um, I feel like I would I should see a spinal tap like fade out like <laughs> yes. I'm thinking like I've never heard a live fade out like that's true yeah. like but spinal tap would do they like slowly walk off the stage back away. yeah exactly and turn down the lights I mean I guess like Haydn's farewell symphony is like the original live fade out maybe fade out. And, uh, <laughs> there's a moment there's a moment in the Messiah that does that too it's like the there's the chorus uh, glory to God that starts with you know your full choir and then there's the um, orchestral uh, codetta, and then it just comes down to like two violins at the end. And so, yeah, they're just they're just going back to heaven up through the hole in the clouds. So, <laughs> little did we know that all you needed was a guy with a fader in the background <laughs> to do all that. Yeah. Well, yeah. you brought up a lot of really interesting things about texture and timbre, and because. And the issue, of course, is we can't notate all those things down. And we've talked quite a bit about, you know, the use of a score or a lead sheet or natural numbers. And of course, none of that production, texture, timbre um, element is notated at all with um, 
with with that notation and that's really kind of what makes a lot of these pop songs hits it's not the chord progression it may not even be the melody or the rhythm but it's that timbre or that post-production effect that's going on or what they're doing to the voices right how do you as a music theorist analyze that stuff and then how do you then like teach our students to do that kind of stuff that is the challenge um Yes, that is a really great question. Um, so I think part of the problem here is that texture and timbre are, uh, well, as you said, it's kind of erased by our notational system, right? This is why theory is so pitched biased, is because the parameter of pitch is the one that's best reflected by our traditional notation. So notes that are higher are actually literally higher on the page. Notes that are lower are lower on the page. And rhythm, yeah, notes that are later in time are like further along to the left. But in terms of our rhythmic symbols, they're really just completely abstract, right? They don't really have an, I mean, they do have an obvious relation to duration in that as the notes get shorter, the symbols use more ink, which seems actually maybe kind of backwards. <laughs> like maybe a, it, maybe a 64th note should really be a breathe <laughs> and vice versa, <laughs> just in terms of like the simplicity of writing them, right? For a short note, uh -huh. wouldn't you rather have a dot yeah. than something with like four little fussy flags? Um, so, and I kind of wonder, you know, there was a while there and there are these, uh, I think some Renaissance examples of like uh, duration, proportionally durational notation. I kind of can't imagine what, like how many pages of a score of like a Bruckner symphony or a Wagner overture would be. <laughs> But as a scrolling score, like if we were all looking at electronic screens, that could work, you know, something more like piano roll yeah. notation that was maybe more intuitive about the rhythm. Um, and that would be nice because it wouldn't force us to kind of quantize everything to the nearest 16th like we so often do, which I think does a certain amount of violence to the expressiveness of micro timing. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's part of the problem. I think another part of the problem is just that we really don't have these very well um, developed methodologies yet for analyzing either texture or timbre. Um, for texture, I mean, our model is really crude, right? We have these three big categories of monophonic, homophonic, and polyphonic. And then we have this extra category of heterophonic that we kind of only use for, for non-Western music. So it really kind of plays into this whole, whole chauvinism of Western art music. Um, Yep. That yeah, yeah that, that sure. we that we focus on these parameters. So I'm I'm working on a, a kind of a more nuanced model of texture that is right now kind of framing those along a big circle. And so one axis is um, how many layers you have, how dense it is. Essentially, is this a melody or is it like a thick, more harmonic thing? And then the other axis is how coordinated are those layers. So is this like block chord homophony or is it a fugue? Um, and I'm trying to kind of range things along that. And so I'm hoping that that will be something that's more inclusive. Um, and uh, I'm also part of a group that's working on timbre. This, this is a big new direction for me, uh, which is funny because I've already made a couple of left turns in my career. Um, so, you know, originally I was working on 19th century kind of historicism in Austro-Germanic music, and then I moved to pop music. But even then I was working on kind of the... I guess what I think of the easily accessible parameters that already have well-developed methodologies like pitch structures and form. And then I started to notice that, yeah, we're really, I'm not talking so much about rhythm and meter and that seems incredibly salient. You know, you have this drummer banging out the mm -hmm. beat and that really lets everyone else in the band have a more complicated rhythmic line. 
uh, and creates a lot of inter potential for interesting dissonances. And it also helps us kinesthetically engage with the music, right? It makes you move, dance or, or clap your hands or play air guitar or whatever, however people respond. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I thought this is the important thing to talk be talking about is rhythm and meter. And, and, and then I thought I was good, uh, but I've, <laughs> I've come to realize that, yeah, okay, we need this new model of texture. And then the timbre thing, I was actually invited to participate in this project by two colleagues of mine that are working on timbre in art music. Uh, my colleague Bob Hasegawa, who also teaches theory at McGill, and my colleague Stephen McAdams, who is in the music technology area at McGill, but uh, is uh, he's an affiliate theory professor, so we co-advise with him a lot. Um, so they have all these big grants to do these huge studies of timbral combinations and how we perceive timbre in orchestration and art music. And they were realizing that this is a really important thing in pop music as well. Um, and, and asked me to come on board and, uh, and lead an arm of the project analyzing pop music. So um, yeah, so I, I have a team of nine people now and some money of our own, and we're doing a corpus study of, um, so far this is like our pilot study of 400 songs in contrasting genres. So we're looking at 100 songs just from the 90s because we needed to narrow this down. So let's take pop as like mainstream and then what things are not like pop. And we decided hip hop, country and metal we chose as sort of things mm -hmm. with outlying contrasting parameters. But actually in every single one of those genres, a really interesting thing happened in the 90s. Um, there is a there is a stylistic change um, or, you know, country became much more pop like. Um, uh, metal kind of moved, well, metal kind of like split up from like this basic binary of like mainstream metal and speed and thrash to like all of these other kinds of subgenres of metal. Um, hip hop kind of shifted from sort of old school to new school. Um, and, uh, and pop just, well, I don't know, pop had an explosion of a particular kind of production style as it tends to do <laughs> every 10 or 15 years. Um, so we're looking at all of those, and uh, I'm being hugely helped in this by two postdoctoral scholars who are working with Bob and Steve, um, who they are, uh, who are working with me as well, uh, Matt Zeller and Lindsay Raymore, um, who both have a lot more. Uh, they both wrote t dissertations on timbre in art music, so they're kind of providing more of the timbre expertise, and I'm providing the pop music expertise. And uh, but it's good. We're getting some stuff figured out. Um, and, and this is leading to me to conclude sort of even more firmly that when we keep talking about the harmony and the melody and even the rhythm to some extent as primary parameters um, and these other parameters, texture, timbre, dynamics and articulation as secondary parameters, um, that's we're being kind of part of the problem in, in reifying this, um, this canon of Western art music, because I don't think those parameters are secondary in popular music. And I think that they're not secondary in a lot of non-Western musics as well. Mm -hmm. So I think yeah. this is just another reason why I think this, this incredible pitch centricity is hurting us. And it's, I mean, it's still the case, even the new theory textbooks, you know, mm -hmm. so now, instead of having one chapter on rhythm and meter at the beginning, they have like another chapter later where they talk about, you know, hypermeter and asymmetrical meter and, you know, maybe symmetric dissonance. Maybe there is now a chapter on timbre, but it's still very much all about the harmony. And, and, and I get that that's so interesting within this uh within this kind of narrow repertoire of Western art music, but, uh, but we just kind of need to get away from the that colonial that colonialization of all of these other kinds of musics yeah. so true what are no what are some things you bring into the classroom to talk about timbre 
um, that I bring in other other than music? Uh, actually, well, this is a perfect like, question because this is timbre week in my pop music analysis class. Um, awesome. So this uh, it's yeah, and this is and actually even for me, I used to have a class on timbre, and now at least we now at least we have two classes on timbre. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think maybe next year I might be teaching a whole seminar on it. So um, um, I uh, I think for now. It's still the best way in is to kind of be pretty genre specific. So, um, like, so for the readings that we're doing for tomorrow, a focus on instrumental timbre, I decided to kind of take two different tacks. One was to look at guitar timbre because that is so important um, and express such an important expressive parameter and also just kind of like a marker for a lot of rock based genres. Um, so, we're reading an article from the collection Fink's uh, Relentless Pursuit of Tone on. Um, on guitar distortion as uh, how it's changed historically over time. Um, and this is not really a main focus of the article, but then kind of the analyses that I want to talk about, or let's talk about the ways in which this is used as a structural and expressive parameter. The real obvious one is there are a lot of examples of verses with a clean guitar tone and choruses with a distorted guitar tone, but there are some other more, I don't know, kind of like text painting-like uses of it, I guess more expressive uses of distortion. And then the other half of that class is going to be on uh, Megan Lavengood's article in Music Theory Online. Um, about um, the novelty layer and the timbres of the Yamaha DX7 synthesizer mm -hmm. in a lot of 1980s pop music. Um, so we're going to read that. And uh, the thing that I was wondering as I read that um, was, are there are there other examples of novelty layers in other music? And I, so I started looking around 70s, 90s music. Can I find novelty layers? Um, and I didn't find a really great example, but I think I am going to throw that out to the students and see if anybody has one. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just going to collected a few other examples of non-normative instruments that change their function. Um, like um, in the Rolling Stones' Ruby Tuesday, there's a recorder line, there's some recorder line that has a kind of a counter melody that um, if it wasn't all the way throughout, you know, I, I'm not sure really. I guess I want to talk with my students about whether they think that's a novelty layer or just a second line of the melody layer. Um, versus in Stairway to Heaven, the recorders are definitely part of the harmony layer. They're not part of the melody. So I just want to talk about those kinds of things, like how this particular timbre is being used with a different functional role in the texture. Yeah, so for me, the way I teach timbre is, is, really, is really very much tied to texture right now. Um, I think it's hard to teach timbre because we perceive it so well. Study, studies have shown, like evolutionarily, we've developed to like hear these these things with this very kind of fine-grained particularity, um, and that makes sense, right? Because if you have some sound source, you know, out in the jungle, you want to know if that's likely to be a predator or prey, right? So we're good at identifying those kinds of sound sources, and I think. Mm, uh, one of one of the points I like to make is that no one knows this show anymore, but there used to be an old show, a uh, game show called Name That Tune, and people would place bets and say, I could name that tune in, you know, five notes or two notes or something like that. Um, and, the th and, and the thing is, I think that was almost never about naming the tune. Mm -hmm. I think that was almost never about the contour of the pitch. I think that was almost always about the timbre. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, yeah, students always can can 
understand this and resonate with this, like the way that you recognize your favorite singer or even your favorite guitarist, even if you don't, you know, even if it's a recording you've never heard before, we just know. So this is part, I think, of what makes timbre so complicated is that we perceive it really well and we don't really know how to generalize about it and make it into a kind of, a, I don't know, a, a cruder bin. So yeah, so so far I'm really talking about what are the roles in the texture and what are the kinds of combinations of timbres that are used. But you know, ultimately I think there's a lot more to be said about timbre as an expressive parameter. I think um, so too. I, I really like that. That just this morning I play so I always play a song to start my theory my written theory classes. It's been a way for me to both diversify the music that we're listening to and the types of composers, performers that the students are hearing from. And I don't myself listen to a lot of country music. So I for a couple of weeks now I've been like, I've gotta get a country song in there for my students in the class who that's their thing. So I used um, Johnny Cash Walk the Line this morning. That was my <laughs> that was my starter one. But anyway, the rhythm, there's a single rhythm instrument that goes the whole way through the original recording. And it's a snare drum, but it's being played by uh, a brush instead of a stick. And so in the eight o'clock class, there were they spent several minutes debating what that thing was. Stu one student was like, was that castanets? I kind of let it go on for a little bit. <laughs> Um, yeah. A lot of my students are singers, and so they have like just such a sometimes a much smaller like list of what it could be. I think is is you know the idea. And someone in the room, there was a drummer in the room who finally was like, "Guys, it's a snare drum, and he's playing it with a brush." And they all were like, "Hmm." <laughs> you know, I was like, "No, he's correct. That's what it is." But. So even sometimes how you've been trained and the types of music that you've been, and maybe even the environment. Like I think they came to music theory class, they weren't expecting me to ask what kind of instrument is that or how is that instrument being used, even though I, I do actually ask that fairly often. But it they had to think about it. They had not connected with that already. And that's a an obvious mark of how much we're focusing on pitch and other things in class over something like that is that that it didn't occur to them like oh she might ask me what tool is being used on the drum in that spot you know or what effect does that create so i think it's right. good for us yeah to yeah. I agree. That's funny because I have a similar experience with some of our student encoders because uh, of the four genres, I'm I'm in charge of the country section, which is also not something that f has been part of my recreational listening very much. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's true for a lot of these students as well. So yeah, none of them knew at the beginning when we started out, the pedal steel guitar was completely unfamiliar. What is that? Mm. Uh, and harmonica, which I also thought was funny. Well, at the time I thought it was funny, but then I think, well, I could see how you could mistake that maybe for a melodica or a harmonica synth line, you know, um, and, and you can't always really tell these days. I think in the old days when synthesizers were cruder, it was really easy to tell. But these yeah. days it's good enough that sometimes you're not really sure. Is that a real right. bass or a synth bass? It sounds like a bass. I mean, ultimately, right. it doesn't really matter that much. Well, what I was going to say is I feel like there is a lot of complexity there, but on the same, uh, on the same, uh, on the flip side, I guess, is that there is something that's, I guess, innately human about timbre. Um, for example, what came to mind when y'all were talking was like the closing of a door. Like I've heard so many doors close in my, in my lifetime, but yet I could identify like the closing of the front door to my house. And it's like, why is that? You know, like I, you know, it's a door, it's just a door closing and I've heard many doors close, but like, I think there is a, like, 
an untapped potential there of like our aural training is like we can detect like these subtleties of timbres like i know that that was my front door you know but it's largely untapped in our field because we've neglected it so much you know um yeah we've ignored it well i think the people that that have some of that information are are the the recordists the sound engineers and i think that they have this huge body of expertise that is like handed down well for for the a long time it was just handed down orally um and so this is actually something that i'm actually just starting to look at myself is um that there are like ear training for record production books so just because, yeah. I mean, I have some base, you know, I know what compression sounds like and reverb and, but, you know, once again, it, this gets at this just incredible level of detail. I mean, where you have people who know like, oh, what kind of, you know, tape this was recording on or whatever, but um, um, that we, that we don't really, yeah, that we don't talk about and, and haven't really paid attention to and haven't really kind of learned to, to, to hear or to be able to describe in, in coherent terms. Yeah, I was thinking the exact same thing about basically having to teach our students critical listening. Like, it's not enough just to be able to dictate a melody or hear a harmonic progression. That's that's very good. But being able to critically listen to the timbre um, and to know how these things are made, I think that's a really important thing. If we're going to be teaching students to go out there, I have a bunch of music therapy students, and so they're going to be making music on the fly, using electronic instruments, things like that. Well, do they even know how those sounds are made? You know, if they have a client that wants to make you know, wants to do some type of hip hop song. Like, do they know the type of sounds? I mean, they uh, they know because they've heard it, but do they then know how to make those sounds, right? Have they really listened and learned what goes into that? And I think that's like a, an important thing for our students to know going out in their careers. For sure. Ironically, the, so the music business students where I teach take RL Skills 3 separately from everyone else. And their RL Skills 3 is called critical listening and it's about recorded sound <laughs> so when you said that i was like i guess we are trying to teach critical listening here <laughs> that is the thing we are trying to do mm -hmm. but yeah they yeah. have a whole separate like RL skills for recording engineers kind of class that is so cool that is the class that i want to take yeah me too because <laughs> the me other too. thing that is coming up in my own pop music analysis class to get ready for their presentations at the end of class is that i say you have to have audio examples and and I don't want them to just you know, and 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 they must be faded in and out if they're if they're going to be excerpts. And so uh, I'm going to give them like a little primer on here's Audacity, here's Sonic Visualizer, and here's Ocean Audio. And at the same time, I'm kind of torn because it's like I have to give have this really quick practical tour of like okay, here's how to like cut an excerpt, and here's some things you can play with, but mostly you need the volume and the fade in and out. <laughs> But they're such powerful tools for free. I mean, I think it would be really mm -hmm. neat to kind of integrate using those into some kind of maybe combined like musicianship and analysis course using using those kind of audio editing tools. That would be really neat. For sure. Yeah, we do, we do a, a section at the end of RL Skills 4 where, where I have my students learn the different basic waveforms and be able to identify them orally. Oh, cool. And then, they, then we have a dance party at the end of the semester where they have to come together. Well, before COVID, they would come together and they would have like a little quartet and they'd each have to, we would talk about the different layers, right? So you have a bass line, you have a melody, you have like maybe a harmony, you have a drum, and they each have to play it on their own little device. And they'd have to talk about why they chose, you know, the sound that they did, because of course, like a sawtooth, 
punches through the texture that a uh, you know triangle wave does in. And so talking about how those sounds would work, um, but you know, getting them just to you know listen critically and think about okay, what is that buzzy thing that you're hearing on that dance tune? Okay, what's oh, it's a sawtooth wave. All right, I know what that is. I can hear what that is, and then you know, so that's so neat. And do they actually dance at the dance party? Um, not. Usually not, but I have had some people wear costumes. <laughs> so, uh, we don't usually, because do, the class is at 930 in the morning, so they're not really up uh. for that. But I have had costumes and some choreography, you know, when, they, when they're performing. So it's, it's a good time. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. So ultimately, what I'd really like to see is, um, and in fact, I've been talking with um, two of my colleagues, Bob Hasegawa and Ed Klorman about um, what we could do to um, revise our undergrad, especially our undergraduate core curriculum to be more inclusive, both of musics and of different kinds of students and different kinds of interests. Um, so I think we're gonna spend next summer like writing a grant to do this. Um, but the, the thing that I envision that I would like to see happen is some kind of modular curriculum um, not exactly like the one that Megan Labengood has proposed, which is still kind of focused around a lot of, um, it's uh, kind of a revision of a traditional thing. I'd, I'd, I'd like to kind of throw the whole thing out and start over um, and, uh, and really focus uh, for a four semester curriculum. I think I would like to see four terms that were just focused on particular parameters. And then within that, whatever maximal diversity the instructor can fit within that. So I think mm. it'd be good to start with a semester of form because that's easily hearable and, and less score, it can be. Uh, it's easier to do an analysis that's less score-based than other parameters that are on a smaller scale. And then maybe a semester on rhythm and meter, uh, which is again, maybe there are simpler ways of representing that notationally than there are of pitch. And then a term of pitch structures, or because we are lucky and we have a five semester theory sequence, maybe I would separate that if we were still having five semesters into a melody semester and a harmony semester, and then a semester on timbre and texture. And I'm not sure that that should be last. I kind of feel like none of them should be last, right? It's a problem there. <laughs> um, but I really like to see something like that because I feel like that would provide a much better framework for including popular musics and non-Western mm. musics. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Because I'm tired of yeah, looking for, totally. an, oh, I need an augmented six chord, and, and you can always find one in the Beatles, right? Right, but right. <laughs> Jazz, they're all over jazz. Yeah, yeah, right, jazz. <laughs> of course, in jazz, I'm like, I mean, this is really a tritone sub. I it just goes through another dominant. Nicole MTO <laughs> yeah. article. I cited that this morning in class. No, really. I have to say, if I were writing that now, I feel like I tried a little bit too hard to make this distinction of how they were different. I mean, I think, yes, fundamentally, there are some style things that make that make them behave differently in these different repertoires. But, but fundamentally, I think I really should have admitted that this is two different names for basically the same thing. Yeah, I mean, the way I teach it is just like, you know, it's a German or a French or whatever, if it goes to a dominant function chord and you know it's a tritone sub if it goes to a minor seven or a major seven, like in a jazz <laughs> chart when you're reading it, that's the difference in how you label it. That's pretty much it. But, you know, in jazz, of course, it's not doing the classic, like, you know, fee and lay resolving out to so. It's not doing that. It's, you know, right. essentially, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, but I mean, that's true of a lot of the voice leading rules also, true. right? So in classical, seventh goes down, seventh goes right. down. Right. But in jazz, seventh hangs out. Oh, totally. <laughs> There's sevens on everything. They can't all resolve down. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, for sure. Well, this has been just a hoot, and I, I've I've loved chatting with you about all these ideas about incorporating pop music and timbre into our curriculum. But we have to let you go. We know we're uh, we we promised you to be done in like an hour or so. And <laughs> but before we let you go, um, Ben, you already have your backpack on. You ready to? Oh, you have to pick up your kids, don't you? <laughs> Sorry. Ben should go first like, in rapid fire. Yes. We have our rapid fire questions. And so um, oh, okay. just questions off the cuff. <laughs> all right. Okay. And so uh, short, short little sound bites. So, Ben, would you like to go first? Favorite pop music example that you teach? Oh, I have to pick one. <laughs> uh, the rapid fire is tough. Okay. I'm going to say Rush YYZ because it's still the only successful piece of Locrian that I know. Um <laughs> And oh, nice. it has a weird final cadence that's like very rhetorical, but it has kind of an alternate dominant of flat five. And yet in the and then in the middle, there's a little bit of Phrygian, but there's also like some normal major pentatonic stuff. So and weird meter, of course, because yeah, as you may know, that rhythm of ba da ba 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 da da ba 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 da 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 that is the Morse code for Y Y Z. I can never actually remember the letters, but I I can like reverse engineer it <laughs> just because I know that that riff. <laughs> That is awesome. <laughs> Paul, do you want, All right. do you want to go? Um, do you want me to go? Can you go first? Yeah. I need to think. All right. So here's my question. And it, I'm going to preface it very mildly. I taught rhythm this morning. I always try to teach it better every time because it's the thing that always feels like it flops when you teach. Like, this is simple meter. Um, so what is your hot tip for teaching meter so that your students stay engaged? Um, I like to start out with teaching them to conduct, actually, and then mm. I play them music and have them conduct along and I encourage them to, you know, do this in the car and all that. And so, I don't know, I think um, that does two things. One is it, it, it's, um, uh, it helps them internalize bodily the beat mm -hmm. by, by having these motions that go with it. But I think it also, I don't know, just the idea that they're framing themselves as a conductor, it gives them a sense of like, oh, I, I have some kind of, I mean, maybe your ownership is not like the right word, but for them, right. it's like a different kind of way into the music. So mm. that's actually really my favorite thing to do for rhythm is to have them conduct. But also, um, I make them clap on one and three and, and two and four. And mm -hmm. we talk about the different feels of those um, and, uh, and I teach them the clave rhythm right away just because it's in so much popular music. Mm. So I guess that's like my little small bag of tricks. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I love it. That's great. My question is, what is your, based off of your own experience of having kind of moving around and, um, what is your advice to someone who is f nearing the end of their graduate times, um, and looking to go out on the job market? Um, I would say it gets better. Um, <laughs> uh, so I think for me, one of the hard things, um, especially as a woman music theorist, is that I really kind of struggled with uh, feeling like I needed to project a certain amount of authority. Um, and I was very afraid to mm -hmm. admit to not knowing anything. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and, and it took me a really long time to kind of 
recognize that actually I come across as having more credibility if I just say I don't know than to kind of try and put up this window dressing or like fudge or whatever. Um, so that's been part of it. I guess part of it has been kind of recognizing that I don't need to know everything to mm. teach people something that, that I know enough. There's that kind of pedagogy chestnut of, oh, be the guide on the side and not the sage on the stage. Mm. Um, and, uh, and the other thing that was really helpful for me as a beginning teacher, I know you didn't really ask specifically about teaching, you asked about that job market. And I guess my, my mm. advice there is to, to yeah, I, I think I've already said, just to, to be who you are and don't try to be who you think they want you to be. Mm. Just, 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 just be your authentic self. And if it's a good fit, then it's a good fit. And if it's not, then really that's not the job where you are going to have a happy career anyway. Um, mm. But uh, the cheap tricks that have really helped me a lot as a teacher, um, the first time that I was uh, going to teach one of those big 100-person lecture classes, I was really nervous about this. Um, and someone said, you know what you should really do? Talk like a preacher. And I thought, I keep saying cheap, because I did think, I thought, oh, wow, yeah, okay. Um, and then I tried it out. And, and I think part of that was just encouraging me to have a more extroverted teaching persona. So, you know, I walked around more and I, I mean, I'm Italian, so I talk with my hands a bit anyway, but they're usually kind of right here in front of my face. So I made big gestures and, um, you know, touched things. And, um, and that was really incredibly effective. Um, and uh, and also to just not be afraid to be your own weird self and make your stupid jokes mm -hmm. because the students will laugh even at the bad jokes. You don't. Mm -hmm. It's better if you can make a good joke. But really, any kind of joke is good. Um, and and a lot of silly props that I use. I, I had for a while this. Um, I think it had started out life as a Christmas wreath pinata, but anyway, I had turned it into like this big model of the tonnets that my students uh, <laughs> named the tonal bagel. And I think this is what I really need. I need some kind of inflatable bagel that I can draw tonuts on. But also someone gave me these little finger puppet, uh, little finger puppets of composers. And so sometimes I make, you know, Mozart and Beethoven have little arguments about parallel fists. And um, yeah, so see, it's working on you. You're laughing. It is. So it again, is these are, it's, it's cheap that. tricks, but easy. And yeah, so I always wear a costume on Halloween and I always have students who get really like disproportionately excited about that. So honestly, I think whatever whatever we can do to, to, to liven it up and, and just admit that we're humans and this doesn't all have to be this deadly, serious, dusty, abstract thing is, uh, is all to the good. Because fundamentally, it's not. But I yeah. think mm -hmm. that some areas of the discipline uh, have in, in the kind of uh, mill that they've had to go through to be accepted as an academic area of research, mm -hmm. I think they've kind of they've kind of suffered in a way. I don't know. I just mm -hmm. think, especially when you know, we're, as as Dmitry Tomasco has said, and you know, I know people have issues with him, but um, uh, nobody because we're music theorists. Part of the beauty of being a music theorist is that nobody dies if you get it wrong, and that's really a very freeing <laughs> thing. So I really think we should just stop taking ourselves so deadly mm -hmm. seriously. Mm -hmm. Well, and if we can include more of the music that students are listening to and it's happening now, we will feel a lot more relevant and not like we're just this, you know, in this dusty uh, history. Well, can you tell us just a little bit about how people can find you if you, of course, want to be found, but uh, with any, if people want to reach out to you with any questions, ideas, and just kind of some of the things that you're working on. You mentioned uh, your project that you have going on, but things that you've got in the works. 
Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm at Nicole.Biamonte at McGill.ca. So I'm easy to find or if you just, yeah, or if you just Google like Nicole and Music Theory and McGill, you'll come up with my page and my email. Um, yeah, what else am I working on? I am working on, I did my first collaboration with my husband, who, as I said, he's a musicologist and he actually started as a, a vagrant, well, I shouldn't say started because he still is. Um, his main area of focus uh, has been the second Viennese school and sketch studies. So he's done Weber and sketch mm. studies. Um, but I am, uh, because he's also an experienced uh, listener and practitioner of popular music. And so I'm kind of pulling him into my field a little bit as well. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, we gave our first joint paper this past spring at a progressive rock conference uh, nice. uh, at the University of Ottawa on the recent album of Tools, Fear, Inoculum, which took forever to come out, um, but sounds really like a Tool album that could have come out like maybe 13 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. And their Tool is very interesting to talk about because they are musically complex, maybe even more so than Rush. They use a lot of nested um, dissonances in their rhythms and a lot of asymmetrical time signatures. They are very, uh, there's a lot of timbral exploration. As a band, they are very much a collective. The lead singer, Maynard Keenan, sometimes like stands at the back of the stage. He does not want to be the front man of the band. Um, so that's interesting as well that they pay a lot of attention to kind of, um, I don't know, kind of equal contributions within the band. Um, and they have a lot of literary influences. And of course, they have this huge kind of connection to the visual art of their album covers and their stage design. So it's a really rich topic. So we have just been invited to kind of expand on that for um, a collection on literary influences in progressive rock. So I've, I've already said, well, we can't just talk about the literary influences. We have to talk about the art. Um, and we are talking now about, all right, how much tool are we going to talk about within the context of this chapter? Um, so that's one new thing. Um, I also am following up on a study of metric dissonance in also progressive rock for an earlier edition of this same conference, where I did a small corpus study of kind of canonical prog from the 1970s. And so what I would, am mm. doing now is expanding that and looking at metric dissonance in um, and more more recent examples of bands like uh, like Porcupine Tree and Dream Theater and um, yeah, kind of newer, newer generations of progressive music. Um, and I know there's another thing that I'm working on, or rather that I'm not working on. <laughs> there's always things we're yeah, not working on. Yeah, exactly. On. <laughs> there are, right. <laughs> yeah, and two things that I'm really overdue on actually are um, I'm finishing up a... Um, an article on uh, Russia's 2112 as an exemplar of progressive rock. And so that's been really fun. I have finally gotten to write about Russia, do the deep dive into their music that I really want. Um, and uh, another article on metric dissonance in Abbey Road. Um, so those are sort of the immediate uh, front burner projects. And like I said, there's really already too many of them. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. We will be back with more interviews with professors and teachers who will be dropping all sorts of theory knowledge for your education, edification, and enjoyment. So until then, bye-bye.